so much fun in the garden this time of year, don't you think? Welcome to Into the Garden with Leslie. This podcast is sponsored by Dos Amigos Landscaping, Color Blends, Bulbs, and GreatGardenPlants.com. I'm Leslie Harris, and I am so enjoying my garden right now, and I hope you are into yours. Our plant of the week is a native late emerger and late bloomer that always catches me by surprise, in, in a good way. I'll be chatting with Marion Boswell, a British landscape architect and writer who designs with nature in mind, but not, absolutely not, at the expense of beauty. And the playlist is about what to do in your garden this week. Scott Berline, he of the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Garden and Garden Rant fame, recently wrote a blog post for the Garden Rant blog that made me laugh out loud, so I thought I'd share a bit of it with you. He called it the fine difference between gardening when you want to and gardening when you have to. And I can tell you from personal experience of gardening at 50 clients' gardens that it is far more enjoyable to garden when you want to. Here are three of his best examples. When you want to, the holes practically dig themselves. When you have to, you get arrested for trying to buy plastic explosives online. When you want to, you hum a tuneful melody. When you have to, your cursing makes sailors cry out for their mothers. When you want to, you dig up a beautiful and valuable antique marble. Whoa, that has never happened to me, but my short list of treasures with digging include matchbox cars, oyster shells, and once an old boot. Just the one, it makes you wonder. But Scott's example of stumbling upon treasures underground on a bad day was, you chink the underground gas line and six of your neighbors are still missing from the ensuing blast. I'll put a link to his blog post on my blog post on lhgardens.com. And I hope for you, dear listener, that you only ever garden exactly when you want to. And if you're like me, that's really often. Moving on to the plant of the week, I chose this week the Conoclinium coelestinum, also known as the Eupatorium coelestinum. Just rolls off the tongue, does it not? A lot of people call this the blue mist flower. It's also called blue bone set. It's also called hardy ageratum because its flowers resemble the annual ageratum, which is native to Mexico, which is something that some other people call floss flower. That's the ageratum houstonianum. Anyway, back to our coloclinium coelestinum. What shall we call you? Because although you, dear listener, have only heard me get through this botanical name about two or three times, that's just not what happened, and I had to do a lot of editing because I made a dog's breakfast out of the pronunciation. So, hey, let's go with the blue mist flower. Blue mist flower is a native perennial that's found in central and southeastern United States and even in the West Indies. It has a big grow zone. It grows in zones 5 through 10, like gets pretty hot. So lots of different places, gets to about 2 to 3 feet tall. It can definitely get the flops. So if you want to avoid that, you could pre-prune it when you notice it coming on. Speaking of noticing it coming on, it's a bit tricky with this one. It breaks dormancy quite late. And so because I am indifferent about keeping records of where I plant what, I have more than once gone to fill a hole that I see in the border in spring and dug into the blue mist flowers roots. And then I say, oh yeah, that. And I stuff the roots back into the hole and no harm done because it is not a diva. In fact, far from it. As I tool around doing my research on the blue mist flower on the Google machine, Oh, by the way, this should make you feel good because I actually do that. I do offer plenty of gardening opinions and personal experiences on this podcast, but you might be gratified to know that with the plant of the week, the usual schedule is this. I think, oh yeah, here's a good plant of the week. 
And then I think, oh, I know all about this plant because I grow it. And that is almost always the case that, that I grow it. And then I think, but wait, do I really know all about it? Shouldn't I make sure about the facts? And then I go to the Missouri Botanical Database or maybe some other sites and take a look at a few facts. And presto, this part of the show is pretty accurate, except when I get overwhelmed with TMI. And then I let you know, which I did with the hostas a few weeks ago. I'm like, I I can't research anything more about hostas. There's too much to know. Anyway, I was a bit surprised to learn when gathering information about the blue mist flower that a lot of people think that it's a garden thug. I would not have gone that far. But as I said, it's no diva. So very late-breaking perennial that blooms, according to the Missouri Botanical Database, anywhere from July to October. But for me this year, and I think most years, it starts in September. So maybe it starts a lot earlier in, uh, in hotter zones. I don't really even notice the foliage until August. It's purple. I know, it's the blue mist flower, but you know how gardeners are always saying blue when they really mean purple. It's not a perfectly round flower head. It's about the size of a large marble. The Mobot flower description is this, numerous small fluffy tubular blue-purple flowers about a half an inch across with discoid heads of dense topped terminal clusters or corymbs. Yeah, I think it might be easier to just say it's a large, slightly squished purple marble, and you can picture it. The foliage is pretty. It's kind of a medium green with oval leaves about two inches long, and it's really wrinkly, like lots of veins. Can you picture a Joe Pye weed leaf? It's like wrinkly, kind of like my neck, lots of wrinkles. The blue mist flower grows in full sun to part shade and it can take dry soil, but it would love to be in wet soil. Oh, well, so maybe that's where it gets its thuggish tendencies and perhaps I will take some down to my bog garden and see how it does there because it's easy enough to edit. It actually would look really pretty next to my pink chelone or turtle head, you know, And it could pick up the blue because when that bloom starts out, the great blue lobelia or lobelia syphilitica is a good foil for it. And then it kind of finishes up. And now we have a lot of pink with the chelone and the begonia grandis. That purple of the blue mist flower could be a really good second purple act. The blue mist flower is deer resistant. And how do I grow this? Well, forgetfully, because it does take me by surprise sometimes. I think I will give it a go down in that bog garden by the Chelone. There's a great patch of it growing near my tiny herb garden that seems quite happy. And I with it, because it waited patiently until the tree peony and the columbine in that area were done. And now it's pretty much being supported by their foliage. So it's not flopping. It looks quite nice. But of course, once again, I forgot it was there. So I stuck a gomfrina right in the middle of that space too. And it's kind of draped all over that. But if I give the blue mist flower a bit of a haircut, I think I could enjoy both concurrently. You know, we've talked a lot on the show on succession planting, mostly because of the great education that Marianne Wilburn and I got from that week with Fergus Garrett at Great Dixter back in May. There are tricks to knowing what grows well next to, before, and after what. And one of the trickiest tricks is about being an old geezer gardener like myself and taking a bunch of years to try things out. But from what I know about blue mist flower in my garden, it doesn't seem tough enough to run neighboring plants out of town. I think it's just one of those ones that can come up between other things that have bloomed earlier. Anyway, it's a great plant, lots of pollinators, native, and willing to provide some late season color for you. The blue mist flower or conoclinium coelestinum. Ha, give it a grow. My friend Karen Blair is a Charlottesville-based painter whose work I know you would love. 
Karen is known for her joyous use of color and her own garden and those of friends inspire the flowers and trees that you see in her paintings. Her artwork is amazing, and I want you to go to the blog post that accompanies this episode on lhgardens.com and see her featured painting of the week. And from there, you can link to her website and Instagram to see more of her work because you are going to love it. This is Into the Garden with Leslie, kindly delivered by Dos Amigos Landscaping, Color Blends Bulbs, GreatGardenPlants.com, along with some help from my friend Karen Blair, the artist. And coming up, we're going to talk with Marion Boswell, landscape architect from Great Britain. This is Leslie Harris with Into the Garden with Leslie, and we are back and chatting with Marion Boswell from England. And she got my attention when I first started listening to the Gardener's World podcast, and Eric Anderson is the host there. Both ladies were having this wonderful conversation in which it became clear to me that Marion was a very successful landscape architect who put sustainability in front, not of beauty, but just in front of all things to get beautiful gardens. And plus she had a sense of humor and she sounded very charming and she's written this wonderful book. And so I wanted to talk to her. So thank you, Marion, for joining me. Gosh, what a what an introduction. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> um, so tell us about tell us about your firm, first of all. It's Marion Boswell Landscape. How big is it? Where are you practicing? Where do you live? So I live in Kent, uh, not far actually from Dixter, because I hear that you've just been down to Dixter, which is a very favourite haunt of mine. So I'm incredibly lucky. I have Dixter and Sissinghurst on the doorstep, and I'm in what they call the Garden of England. So Kent is the Garden of England. It's a very pretty and I've been here for 20 years, which seems extraordinary. And the people that had the place where I am gardened organically for 25 years before me. So I'm now seeing the benefits in my garden of a garden that's not had pesticides and not had, um, yeah, no no pesticides or fertilizers for um, 45 years, which is is rather lovely. Uh, My firm, as you call it, as a little studio, but firm sounds bigger, So we are a small group of landscape architect, garden designers and horticulturalists. And basically they come down to me. So things were turned upside down through lockdown. Uh, So now a lot of us work remotely, um, but we come together and meet whenever we can, usually sort of every other Monday or, or on site. And we work across the UK and abroad. And as you said, we put sustainability first and it was lovely. A few years ago, I worked with a super, she's a business coach called Elizabeth Cairns. And I hadn't really realized that I was working to an ethos until she sort of said, well, why do you do what you do? And I explained that I thought that we were the guardians of the earth and that that was our job and that every project we do, we're trying to work with clients who are like-minded. And from that, she sort of said, well, not everybody does that. So that sort of became the the studio ethos. And what's amazing and really, really wonderful is I think it's now the zeitgeist. We're all doing it. We're all, well, not all, but many, many people are understanding how important it is. So I'm just one of many now. Well, I think that it's a wonderful plan to follow. I have um, not very much experience with landscape architects, but some people that I've run into who are trained landscape architects are very good on the elevations and the drawings and not even so good on the plants. And then you're, you've taken it a step farther. It's not only good on the plants, but good on which plants, why, and let's, you know, let's put the right ones in the right place so that the earth is helped. So this gives me great hope. If you say that more people are going in this direction, would you say that that's international or just around where you are? 
Well, I think it's international. If I think of the States, I think of Thomas Rayner, who's a very good landscape architect. I've got one of his books somewhere near here. And, you know, I think, I think we're all realising, aren't we, the, I mean, in England, we're, we're now in what, can't think what week of drought we're in, but we, are, we now have a hosepipe ban, which we haven't had since 1976. The news is now more full of issues with whether it's climate change or climate chaos. And I don't really mind what people call it. But so there are some, some people still uh, who say climate change doesn't exist. But I rather like this wonderful cartoon when it's, um, you may have seen it, when lots of people are at a huge conference and somebody's talking about climate change with a big diagram up and somebody in the audience says, but okay, but what happens if we, if we make the world a better place for nothing and climate change doesn't really exist? And, and I just think that's hilarious because of course, you know, we should be looking after the earth, <laughs> whether or not this weird thing called climate change exists. But if you look at the planetary boundaries work by uh, what's he called Stockholm, it's not just climate change, it's biodiversity loss, the sixth mass extinction, it's our air quality, it's the quality of our water and our, our soil. It's so important. So all of those things, I think, do they come before beauty? I, I think that they are beauty, actually. Uh, and I love that Scott Fitzgerald being, you know, you're in Virginia, nice, bit, nice link up there. But in The Great Gatsby, where he says, she was beautiful, but not like the girls in the magazines. She was beautiful for the way she thought. And so I think if our gardens can be beautiful for the way they think or what they do, then the outside beauty follows that. I agree with you so much. And I've heard you describe your garden on other interviews as I was uh, doing a little research on you. And you used a really good word that I think I might adapt. Uh, the word was comfortable. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, I like that. Tell us about your garden. Well, I think comfortable is a good, a really good word. And, and I also think that being comfortable in one's own skin gives you so much freedom to, to be who you are and to express yourself. And uh, I noticed that you also have silver hair. And that, for me, was a huge step in, in my life to say, no, I am comfortable being my age. I'm not going to pretend to be another age. I'm going to be comfortable being who I am and where I am in life. And I think the same is true with my garden. My garden is here for me, for my friends, for my family and for the creatures in it. So it's comfortable for them and comfortable for me. I think we all have our different comfort zones and our boundaries. And I also think that we should test those boundaries but know where they lie so for some people for example having a patch of mown lawn makes them feel calm for me in the house if my carpets are hoovered for example then I don't really mind how many books there are piled about you know that for me is a definition of calm for some people having a mown lawn even if it's messy around the edges that's their definition of calm and that's fine they shouldn't then feel sort of bamboozled into that they have have to have lots of mess but what they can say is, right, it's going to be tidy for the bit I'm looking at. And then perhaps a corner can be given over or a, a whole nother area they don't have to look at could be given over to nature. My own garden is the other way around. It's more given over to nature than not. And my favourite thing at the moment is when I walk up my front path, I have uh, broken out some of the pathway to allow self-seeders in. 
and I'm flanked at the moment by knapweed, which is that lovely purple. Mm. And as I walk up, there are clouds of butterflies walking up me. And I feel like, oh, did you ever see the cartoon of Snow White when she goes through the wood and there's animals, you know, and everything just flying everywhere. And they all fly. I know in that in that scene, they're all a bit afraid, but that's the feeling I get. It's like, yes, they're all here. Everybody's here with me, welcoming me home, which is lovely. That is a really good feeling. I love that. I would say that um, letting plants come where you want them to come and then being able to edit them out when you have that feeling of, oh, no, I need a little bit more control is such a good one. And I agree with you that it's an individual thing what your comfort level is. I used to be beholden to have my front garden neat because I ran a gardening business and it was based on the predication that I could keep a garden quite tidy. At the same time, the back was my wild space. I called it my mullet garden. A business in the front, party in the back. <laughs> Lovely. And so because I'm no longer running that business, because I'm just a podcaster now who's just interested in fiddling around in her own garden and talking to people like you, I really enjoy letting that go a little bit too. But there's a part of me that just needs a little control. I'm a little bit of a control freak. And I think, well, that's okay because there are so many bits where it's it's nature's taking over and it's all i'm controlling it from far away you know what i mean it's a really good feeling yes we're all curating aren't we even even in letting it go we are curating in a way because we live here and i think the ways that you could do that are, are many so so i have a, a lawn which i've mown a big spiral into and i love seeing how many people are now doing that and people sending me pictures from all over the world actually and that's rather lovely because you are the statement then to anybody passing by is I am in control. You know, this is a very neat shape. You can see that I haven't just neglected my whole garden and that I don't care because that's what other people also think. They worry that you don't care about other humans or the neighborhood. But if you've mown a shape into your lawn, then the, the wild bits which come up can be used for the, the wildlife and the birds and the butterflies and the bees and the lizards or whatever. But also you're also saying I'm actually, I am in control, which I think when you went to Dixter, you probably heard the story of how people would sort of tut tut looking at the meadow at the front path in, in, the, in the early days. They couldn't believe what Christo was doing to allow that tidy lawn to be going over to meadow. And now it's the most photographed thing, isn't it? Yes, it is the most photographed thing. And they've I think they've put more and more into it. I can't remember who said it, but I read I read a line that said the best type of garden is one that looks as though it's slightly gotten away from you. <laughs> yes, yes. And then it's welcoming. And then people want to come in. Don't they? they want to spend time. They don't feel that they're, I think also they don't feel that they're being judged. Right. Which is quite nice. Everything more comfortable. Marion's written a beautiful book uh, called Sustainable Garden Projects, Insight and Advice for the Eco-Conscious Gardener. And one of the many projects in it is the spiral lawn. I was so struck by how simple the book is. I mean, some of the projects are just, you know, things that many gardeners do all the time, such as taking cuttings or seed saving. Some of them are very simple, but unusual, like making comfrey tea. I want to get back to that. What a smell. And then, <laughs> and then some of them are so creative, like the dead hedge. We want to get back to that. And this lawn spiral. And literally, there are these cute photographs of Marianne with a screwdriver and a hammer and doing this and doing that <laughs> with her lawnmower and she's got a long stake on the on the front of it so that she can understand her distance of starting the spiral so simple I, when so simple. it's embarrassingly simple I was trying to explain it the other day and the explanation was much more complicated than the actual thing so so simple yes it's lovely it's just those sorts of things 
So then you think, aha, yes, why not? Have a go. How long ago did you do that? And can you see improvement year to year? Or do you does it sort of start fresh every year in terms of wildflowers that come into yours? So we literally mowed it onto normal lawn with nothing added for the first year and just enjoyed watching the grasses come up. And I think one of the lovely things about lawn is, well, it's it's lovely to walk on that sort of delicious green, soft underfoot. At the moment, in between the high grass, we still have lovely green for me to walk on at the moment, even though there's a full on drought. So by allowing some of it to be taller, it has shaded the paths so that otherwise my whole lawn, I have another lawn, which is completely brown. Mm. So I think that's that's a good lesson. After a year, we cut down the long bits and we cut it quite hard. And then we strewed some donor hay, which happened to be from Great Dixter, and strewed that onto the longer patches and then saw what came up. And this year we've got lots of yellow rattle. So that is super because yellow rattle, as you know, is really good for promoting wildflower because it reduces the vigour of the grasses. And so now what I'm doing is taking the seed of the yellow rattle and strewing it on the bits that didn't have it. And then we'll see what comes up next year. We've already got sorrel, which is delicious to eat. So I do a meditation in the spiral, so walking barefoot, even in the, the snow and in the, in the frost. It's a bit like wild swimming. You get that amazing cold feel on your feet. Wait, wait, wait. You don't wear shoes when it's frosty and snowy? No, no, don't wear shoes. It's fantastic. Is it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And it's not for long. It's, uh, I mean, it, what does it take? Five minutes in, five minutes out. It feels brilliant. Just like, yes, just like wild swimming, that amazing cold water immersion. Yeah, see, I've never really gotten that either, but to each his own. <laughs> <laughs> oh, lovely. When you look at the photographs in this book, and I'll, I'll put links to all this on the blog post that accompanies this podcast on lhgardens.com, you will see Marianne mowing this, this spiral, and it is so simple. And the results are almost instantaneous because grass grows. And so the wildflowers might come later. Then let's talk about, well, let's knock off the bad smelling one, the comfrey uh, tea. I grow a lot of comfrey. I love it, how it flowers so prettily in spring. It's a really good foil. I, I, I grow it at the front of a ton of borders. And I did try the comfrey tea thing. So I put it in a plastic bucket, you know, harvested bunches and bunches of leaves, filled it up with water, let it sit in the sun for three to four weeks. And then because I guess the nitrogen is so high, I think what I wanted to do quickly to get rid of that bad smell was to just dump it on an existing compost pile to say, hey, hurry up, like hurry up, <laughs> decompose faster, you compost pile, and let me get rid of the smell quickly, and then I'll start another new brew. Tell me about what you do. So the smell is bad, but then I dilute it. Uh-huh. So then you dilute it because it's very strong as well. So I thought you were going to say then you burnt the compost and, and it mattered. Did it matter? No, it was all right, was it? Uh, well, yes. Yeah, so my compost is cold. I have 10 compost piles. I'm kind of a compost person. So this this would have been midsummer, and then just like it would work its way down that pile becomes another um, one which is resting becomes another one which is what I'm getting stuff out of and putting back onto the garden yeah well I think that's a very valid thing to do uh, what I also do is is dilute it at least one to ten in a just a normal bucket and water my plants with it so I might water my tomatoes or water anything that wants a bit of a, a boost pretty pure nitrogen right there is so it's fairly nitrogen yes it's pretty high in nitrogen yes have you read that there's a wonderful book called regenerative soils by Matt Powers no. and I think 
is uh, Claudia, I can't remember her surname, but it, it's definitely started in the States. She is running courses on soil biology, not just soil, because normally, you know, we test for texture and structure and chemistry, but actually to test for the biology and see what's growing in your soil is fantastically useful and helpful. And putting things like comfrey tea, uh, uh, it has nitrogen, but also all of those microbes, because the thing that's smelly is obviously it stinks, it's full of bacteria, <laughs> which is brilliant. And it, it might even have some fungus in it and it will have all the protozoans. And I mean, I, the science is actually a little bit beyond me in terms of exactly what's in it, but hugely, hugely beneficial. I had, uh, you know, I was a teacher for many years and the middle school science teacher had this huge banner up in his room that said, the worse the smell, the better the science. (laughs) (laughs) I want to get into soil um, science in a few minutes because you are very knowledgeable on that. And I want to see how you got there because a lot of, again, a lot of landscape architects would not, that would not be their thing. But before we do, I just want to touch on the dead the dead hedge and I mean people are okay what what is a dead hedge we we have plans to live what is it yes so the first time I came across the dead hedge I was doing some work for Charleston's you do do you know uh Virginia Woolf uh Duncan Grant Vanessa Bell the Bloomsbury set basically I think I've heard of them yes yeah so there's a there's a Charleston farmhouse down near Lewis next time you come to Dexter you must go down it's beautiful but they were doing a centenary project they wanted to put in a huge new car park in the South Downs National Park, which is a big issue for us to do it. So I basically had to explain how beneficial everything we were going to do was going to be for the local wildlife. If you cut a hedge in, in the UK, you must, for dormouse purposes and creatures, you must, in, in these very sensitive areas, put in a dead hedge to continue that link. So that was when I first, this was many, many years ago, but that's when I first came across the concept. And I just thought it was brilliant because if you think that our hedges are the super highways for our animals and in the UK at the moment, I've just been talking to this wonderful lady, Nessie Ram, who is a sort of a great advocate for roadside verges and the wildflowers on them. If you think that those roads can be super highways for our creatures as well, then a dead hedge can be a brilliant link If you don't want to have a a growing hedge, perhaps if you're in a shady area or if it's an area where you've just got lots of old brash to use up. So so what is it? I know that you'll be showing the pictures in the book, but basically you get two stakes and between them you pile up garden rubbish, (laughs) branches, sticks, twigs, uh, some leaves, but anything which you feel is brown and needs um, looking after uh, or, or tidying up and you just can create it as long as you like or as wiggly as you like in between trees so but so you can't always plant between trees for example because you can't get down into the root protection zones but you can pile up dead hedge in between them you can make really lovely curvy sculptures and it's somewhere for mice dormice hedgehogs I think you have something else called ground something. Groundhogs, is it? We have groundhogs. Yeah, they're not quite as desirable as a cute little hedgehog because huge tunnels in your garden. Oh, are they big? Oh, okay. Maybe you don't want them. And they provide the food for, for the owls and for the birds of prey. And so you're just helping to build that whole ecosystem by allowing these creatures to run between. 
I am so excited about that. I don't employ a landscape, a landscaper at all. Of course, I'm my own gardener. My husband mows the lawn. He cares a little bit too much about it, but that's a work in progress. And then, uh, of course, we have an arborist because we have some very large trees that could kill us and our neighbors. Um, but basically, it's just me. But I would call my neighbor's landscaper to come take away my piles of brush when they got too big. And I stopped that several years ago, and I just sort of pile them up at the edges. But seeing your photograph in this book, which I will put on the blog, makes me think, but wait, I, this could be so much better. And Marianne, another idea that Marianne Wilburn gave to me is these nests that you can make and um, like just taking them and making them into the shape of a circle that you could actually walk into or crawl into. It's just a whimsical feature in, in some part of your garden. And I'm like, or you could make a boat. <laughs> you could just yes, make a boat, right? you could make a boat. Perfect. An ark, in fact, An arc. which of course... So there's, yes, there's a lovely, a wild Mary, gosh, what's her surname? Mary, come back to me. But she talks about our gardens being arcs. So basically we're looking after the wildlife until such time as it's safe for it all to venture out again. Exactly. The head would have the advantage of the highway leading someplace. The nest or the boat or the arc would be just like leading to itself, but it would be helping at least in some way. Of course. And then they, you could have it leading on. You could, you could have the waves coming out from it. You could have a whole landscape. <laughs> I hope you put one into your next design. So let's get into soil science a little bit. This is a subject that if my regular listeners know, I'm a little short on the science side of life. I'm interested in tilth and smell and I love compost. And when I was a professional gardener, I would have these soil science things made, you know, I'm, oh, please analyze the soil and send me the report and I will look at it. And then my eyes will glaze over just as if I'm on the chemistry section of a standardized test trying to get into college. It just doesn't go well for me. <laughs> I love that. Did you have to do chemistry to get into college? Thank God I didn't have to do that. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a bit almost kept me out. It was bad. <laughs> Very bad, very bad. So I'm not going to cure myself, but let's talk about how you got into it, because this is this would probably be an only ancillary part of studying to become a landscape architect, or tell, tell me how you got into it. I did it before, so I studied horticulture before landscape architecture. Um, my landscape architecture degree did not have a huge amount of horticulture in it, so I think that what you were saying before is still an issue for our landscape architects. The, the, the landscape architects that work with me have all started in horticulture before they switched over to, to landscape architecture. Mm. So I think that that it's that they go together because, as you said, you do need to understand your levels and your drainage and the big complicated and all the rules and regulations. So we we're members of the Landscape Institute, which has you know policies and pretty serious stuff. But at the same time, what really floats my boat is finding out how garden on a large scale which is really what landscape architecture is is how to look after the earth on a big scale so I got into soil by trying to get the right plants to grow but then also looking at how our soil can be seriously degraded and I had the most extraordinary and rather sad actually experience the other day I was talking at the big retreat festival about land land energy soil etc and I explained that we, well, which many of us already obviously know, that we are soil, basically. We are what we eat and we return to soil at the end of our lives. Obviously, we're lots of other things plus a soul as well, but that we are made up of the, this soil. And if we're poisoning it or filling it with microplastics or degrading it, then, then that's us. And this girl came up to me at the end, this woman, and she said, you know, I work for a big farm growing something on, at scale. 
further further north in England. And my job is to get as much production as I possibly can. And I send my samples off to the soil scientists every month to find out what I must add in to make my things grow. And she said, I, I've been worried about it for a while, but the results came back this month. And the scientist said to me that your soil is basically dead. And that is chilling. I mean, that really just sends, you know, shivers up my spine to think that we have just done so much to our soil and taken so much out of it that we then have to add chemicals back in just to grow our food, which means those chemicals are then going into our food. So how I got into it really was just this sort of feeling of, of something being a bit wrong. And as when you were saying that, the, that you don't know the chemistry, but you understand the smell of a good soil, hey, that's enough. You know, if you, can pick up, yeah, if you can pick up soil, hold it in your both hands and take a deep in-breath, well, you're doing yourself a lot of good anyway because it's full of uh, what is it, serotonin, which is a, a hormone which is really, uh, really good for you. But actually, that's enough to know that it's good soil. And if it's friable, if you want to play with it, if you want to feel it, I mean, if you want to crumble it, that's fantastic. If it doesn't feel like that, if, if it feels um, very sad and dusty and blowing away and not holding together, a good way of knowing if you have good soil or not is to look at whether things are decomposing. So if your dog or cat or any other creature, cow, poops and it's still there a couple of weeks later um, or sort of just hard and not being taken down into the ground by anything, then you know that you have a problem. And you and I talked before we came on air a little bit about wormers and whether there are all there are natural alternatives to putting chemicals through our animals in the same way as there are natural alternatives to putting well natural like washing powders and so on which are less harmful to the to the water which then goes into the soil you told me that you are not giving your dog deworming medication right yes so i don't i don't worm my dog i give it something called diatomaceous earth it's called and you know we're learning so i will try and i check the poo I mean, this is, sorry, do you mind talk, podcast talking poo? Part of the garden. Most gardeners have an animal. Yeah. Um, and, and were there to be worms, then, then I would worm the animal because, you know, I'm also care for the animal. But then I would pick it up. I would then pick up the poo. I live in the countryside, so one wouldn't normally pick up poo. It's part of, you know, part of life. And it's good to take uh, the those things back down to the soil. But if it was full of wormer, then I would pick it up. And farmers are doing uh, similar things. Organic farmers are trying not to worm cows. And it makes a huge difference if you've got a cow pat full of dung beetles taking it down into the earth, then that's a good thing. You know, then we're looking after the earth. And if it's not, if it's full of chemicals and the chemicals then kill what's in the earth, then that's not a good thing. So, yes, and soil. Yes. As you can tell, I could talk about soil for a long time. <laughs> I feel like when I look at you, I feel like you're about my age, maybe a little bit younger. And I've only done this professionally for a few years. I was a I was a very avid personal gardener who was keeping track of all that I could um, even before the Internet, just reading up a storm. I feel like soil science has changed greatly in the last quarter century, a couple of decades. What are you seeing? I think we're just understanding more. So soil biology, I find very exciting. I think that people are just beginning to understand all the things which are in soil. And it's not just about the chemistry. It's also about the biology and what's in it. Uh, and we're learning. I think we are, as, as a human race, we're almost, I hope, going through another revolution. So we had the industrial revolution. And now I think we, I hope that we're going through a revolution of understanding to how to actually live with the earth in harmony. So, you know, Steve Lovelock, James Lovelock, sorry, has just died, age 93, on his birthday, which is so cool. 
and he wrote the the book about Gaia well he, he sort of created the Gaia theory of us all being as one and Charles Eisenstein who, who wrote this lovely book uh, Sacred Economics and the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible he's a, an amazing other writer but these people who were saying years ago that look we should be living as parts of this huge system I think that's all coming to fruition. I hope, I hope. You know, the more that I can hear people like you speak and, you know, just spreading the good word. And we have some, um, I know that you do in the UK also, some really good podcasts that uh, concentrate on not just gardening, but this part of gardening. There are plenty of people who are listening to this who are primarily interested. They're interested in the earth, but they have also have a great interest in making their garden look beautiful which I do, which you do, comfortable, but beautiful. Um, how would you suggest if somebody were going to make a really big step and hire a landscape architect or a garden designer, what are some questions that a normal person with not, you know, your level of knowledge could ask to make sure that the person that they're hiring has at least some knowledge and basic interest in making their land better and not just beautiful? Yes, or not just beautiful on the surface. Well, I think to know where they get their materials, because hard materials is a big part of the budget, but it can also be a big part of the harm. So there's a section in the in the book which has a table of different materials. Yeah, I saw that. It was very well researched. What things cost, where they came from, and how much of an impact they would make on. I mean, it was it was very. How did you get all that information? Uh, from other clever people so I wouldn't it's <laughs> definitely and there's a and there's a nice glossary at the back actually there's a you know a, a further reading at the back so do yeah do have a look at that as well uh, and also having worked with good contractors for a long time and and picking their brains so it's a, it's a team it's always a team job but for example if you use concrete then that's not great for um, carbon use and CO2 however if you use fly ash, a high percentage of fly ash in your concrete, that can be better. If you use brick, if, if you're in a brick zone, as we are here, that would be better than importing something heavy from a long way away. If you're hiring somebody, say, you know, how do you approach materials? Are you interested in how far they've come? Would you be able to source things locally? How do you feel about water use? Do you do rainwater harvesting? Would you be interested in helping me recycle water create a wildlife pond how will you make my garden into a little ecosystem so that it's self-sustaining and what sort of level different levels of height will you plant at so another little table in the book which is quite helpful is to think about all the different levels of, of plants so ground cover emergence shrub layer tree layer for shade and for for birds and food and so on so yes if i would ask the the landscape architect or the designer how they would be incorporating those sorts of things in yes and what their ethos is how long the garden will last will they come back and check up on it and if so how often what's their aftercare like they, they, they might not come and do the gardening but they might well come back every year and just talk you through or every six months and talk you through what needs doing is that what you all do Yes. So I have a, I used to do it myself, but when we got a bit bigger, I have a horticulturalist who is fantastic and she now goes back regularly and she works with people's head gardeners um, and they sort of agree what, what needs changing, what needs doing differently or, or how to continue the same. It's, it's lovely. It's such a nice thing. And often the people I work with sort of become, become friends. You know, it's a long job if you're working with somebody, particularly because we do a lot of historic buildings. If you have to get planning permission and listed buildings permission, it could be a couple of years before you even start building the garden. So you're going to know these, these clients and they're going to know you. 
So I say to them often, you know, look at me, but look at other people and choose carefully because it's a long relationship. Absolutely. And so those are great things for somebody to look out for. Now let's go to the person who's minding their own garden and it's there and they're just trying to be better than, you know, it's a small pot. They're trying to be better to the earth themselves. This book would be a huge help to them because of the, some that I'd never seen before, but all doable little projects. But what would you say would be a, instead of projects that you could do to make your garden more sustainable, what's what are some just sort of mindsets or um, personality traits that could help you? Well, I actually, the projects were put in the book because the publishers wanted to have projects and it's fun and it's nice to have you know things to do. But actually, I think it's the approach which is the most helpful thing. Uh, and that's the point that I wanted to get across. And I, I said it actually to some really lovely clients recently who were worried about what to do first. And I said, well, actually, doing nothing is a really good thing to do first. So sit get your to be list written so where do you want to be in the garden how do you want to be in the garden and and really what makes you happy not only in the garden but in life in general so do you have some lovely memory that you want to re-evoke in the garden well then do it and I think that's that's a really lovely gentle thing to think that often doing less is better for a garden because nature's perfectly good at getting on without us you know Nature doesn't actually need us busying about fiddling with stuff and mowing lawns the whole time. I mean, nature's perfectly happy with that. If you've planted a new tree, then you need to give it water, yes. But other than that, there's not huge quantities of things that absolutely have to be done uh, so that things don't die. So I think take it really gently and enjoy it. And the mindset is that we are part of nature, not even that we're working for nature we are a part of it so by being kind to ourselves first and then we can be kind to everybody else I feel like you have this wonderful balance you know so many people are like it's all about the earth or without announcing it loudly they would say it's all about my garden and how beautiful it's going to be Um, and you have not only the earth in your mind but you have the garden and you also have the people. I heard you mention that you are into feng, feng shui. Is that how you say that? Yeah. Yeah, where things should be on the inside or the outside of your house. The people who are in the garden, you, me, and anybody listening to this, it, a big part of it, hopefully you're not whipping out a, a spray bottle of some horrible thing and killing insects. <laughs> hopefully that doesn't make you feel good. But <laughs> part of it is feeling good, no matter what you do in your garden, right? I think that's important for the person. Yeah. Well, I think if you were whipping out the spray bottle and cleaning things because it made you feel good, then you'd need to lean into what it was that you needed to be kinder to yourself about so that, that didn't make you feel good. Yes, that's that. Why did it make you feel good to kill all those things? Yeah. Although I, um, my first go-to is always a really hard hose, like just just water, just get off of that. I'm trying to look at, make it look good. You know, and, I, and I'm sorry, I probably kill quite a few of them that way. Water can be very hard. But yes, I think that we are, as you said, say we are part of it and being nice to ourselves and we're all energy I mean it's all it's an exchange of energy isn't it which is why the feng shui is important because land energy people energy earth energy we are all energy and the kindness energy is is really catching and you're saying about the water energy you know hitting something with a hose the energy of pushing something off with the water the energy of really being kind to people is is huge impact as well yeah it really is Marion, this has been such a pleasure and I'm going to direct people to listen to other podcasts that you've done and you're, oh, and I just wanted to mention you have a sustainable landscape foundation that you have started with Erin Anderson. She is the interviewer 
on Garner's World that I first heard you on. Will you tell us about that foundation? Yes. So Arit and I met a few years ago and it was one of those things where we were just drawn to each other and we knew that we would do something together and we weren't really sure what. But it was at an awards ceremony that we first started actually talking. Arit, I think, was giving out the awards. She's a garden designer. She's also an amazing media personality and such a good communicator. And I was winning an award, which was very nice. Yes. But we, we were saying to one another, this is madness that the awards are all predicated on the size and value of the garden. And really, it should be much more about what good they're doing. So rather than saying, isn't this beautiful and aren't the design, you know, isn't it all laid out beautifully? It should, and that's what we're going back to what we were saying about before, it should be beautiful below the surface. And that was how the foundation came about because then we started talking saying, okay, how can we help people to know what good looks like? Because you were asking about how I researched all all the materials in the book. How do any of us know anything? We are all on a huge learning curve. And one thing I find well, funny if it wasn't tragic, is people now approach me as a sustainability expert. And that did worry me. But having met lots of other sustainability experts, I know that we are all finding our way and nobody has all the answers yet. So that was the point of the foundation. Come together with some of the people, the RHS, National Trust, University of Sheffield. We're working with Arup, um, LUC, brilliant, big landscape uh, design firms and uh, people who really know their stuff, we've got a brilliant board of directors, to say, okay, what can we do? How can we do something to make our industry, which actually can be quite a big pollutant. So the construction industry is, is not great historically. And although we are creating beautiful gardens, we can often be trashing a place on the way to creating that beautiful garden. So how can we do that much more sustainably? And that's, that's what the foundation is all about. And so landscape architects and designers in England can use the foundation as a resource for how to improve their game. So what we're doing is we are at the moment we are doing well several things, but one of the things is we're building a website. Mm -hmm. So it's not up and running now. We're hoping it will be beta testing at the end of this year. Mm -hmm. It will have a resource for smaller designers, but also for the larger players to be able to measure what they do and to see how to do it better. So I'll talk to you more once it's actually sort of up and running, because at the moment we're still trying to work out how to have the most impact. I imagine that it's it's a question in itself. It's complicated. It's absolutely, it's a complex issue. And if you look at the planetary boundaries I was talking about, it's not just climate change, it is biodiversity, it is water, it is soil, it is materials, maintenance, all these different things. So it's, it's a big, big subject. So we, we welcome anybody else who also has really good ideas. We're definitely not saying, hey, guys, leave it to us. We've got this. (laughs) (laughs) And then even once you've got, if you've got the good formula and people are participating, then how do you get the word out? As as in life, it's it's very complicated, but at least it's something. Exactly. And we we get very excited about it. We wanted to do something. And so many other people wanted to do something too, that it's wonderful to come together and a real buzz when you're talking to people and all these ideas are flying about. Like that, like that. Well, Marion Boswell, thank you so much for coming to talk with me. So Marion's a landscape architect and garden designer, and she is very interested in not just beauty, but beauty inside, just like F. Scott Fitzgerald's Great Gadsby. What was that woman's name? Uh, Daisy. Daisy, just like Daisy. How apt that she had a flower name. (laughs) A pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Lovely to meet you too. This is Into the Garden with Leslie, and we'll be back in a few minutes talking about what to do in your garden this week.
Welcome back to Into the Garden with Leslie. Hey, are you ready to create the garden of your dreams? GreatGardenPlants.com is here to help with perennials and shrubs delivered to your front door. With over 800 plants to choose from, you'll find exciting new varieties as well as old favorites. Their new website makes plant shopping really easy and really fun. I know this because I do it. You can use filters to figure out zone and light and color and more. And once you're ready to order, they let you select your own ship date so that you can schedule ahead for when you want to plant. And if you're worried about shipping plants in the mail, just don't worry because they arrive in great condition, but they're also guaranteed. And as a listener of this show, you can save 10% on your first order with the code GARDENWITHLESLIE. Visit GreatGardenPlants.com and shop with the code GARDENWITHLESLIE for 10% off. And happy gardening with GreatGardenPlants.com. Hey, I've got some late-breaking news for you, and if you are not going to be in or around Charlottesville, Virginia on Wednesday, October 5th, I'm really sorry to put you through this, but this is an important public service announcement for those who might be. If you think you can get to Charlottesville on October 5th, my friend Marianne Wilburn is speaking to my garden club, which is the Albemarle Garden Club, and we just this moment decided that we are going to sell tickets to the general public to see Marianne because she's so darn good that that's what we ought to do. So how would you buy a ticket to see Marianne Wilburn speak at Farmington Country Club in Charlottesville, Virginia on Wednesday, October 5th at 9.30 in the morning, I think it's going to be? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to buy the tickets because we literally just decided. But... If you want to see Marianne, and, oh, and she's going to be talking about tropical plants and how to love them. That's her book. And specifically, because it's the perfect time of year, how to bring them inside so that they can have a happy winter with you. So mark your calendar for Wednesday, October 5th at 9 or maybe 9.30 in the morning at Farmington Country Club in Charlottesville, Virginia, and then the ticket thing. Okay, so I'm going to let you know the details when I know them on Instagram. And if you miss my Instagram post, or I'll probably do a few, about where to buy the ticket for this event, don't hesitate to direct message me and I'll get you to the right place to be able to see Marianne Wilburn speak right here. Okay, back to our normal programming. (laughs) Marianne Boswell and I had such a fun talk. You know, I've said it before, I'll say it again. I really enjoy doing this podcast because of the wonderful people that I get to meet. She was so nice and really inspiring. I'm going to follow up here with a couple of things that she mentioned that I sort of like faked it and I said, "Uh uh-huh, but I really wasn't sure what she was talking about. So here's my list that I came away with. What is fly ash in concrete? Turns out that fly ash is the fine ash product produced at coal-fired power plants that develop cementious, I guess cement-like properties when mixed with cement and water. It's widely used in the United States to strengthen concrete. Okay. Um, She mentioned Matt Powers, who is the author of Regenerative Soil, The Science and Solutions. I'll put a link to his book, which you can purchase at my Amazon storefront. He's a permaculture author with a YouTube channel and courses. And the book's title made me think, hmm, that could be a good bedside book if you want to fall asleep quickly. But the reviews and seeing Matt's personality on YouTube... I think it would be a lot more lively than that. You know, it's not it's not too textbooky, and apparently it has some great information. She also mentioned Claudia West and Thomas Rainier's book Planting in a Post-Wild World, which is really famous and is definitely one that we should all read. Uh, Thomas Weiner calls his book A Real-World Guide for Creating Beautiful, Ecologically Connected Landscapes. There is not a designer or property owner that would not benefit from this approach. Oh my gosh, another must-read book that I have not made the time to read yet. Oh dear, but it is on my list. 
Marion also mentioned the Bloomsbury Group, and I vaguely acknowledged that I had heard of them, and that actually was true. This is, and I'm quoting from Wikipedia, which just explained things more succinctly than I do sometimes, Charleston or Charleston House in East Sussex is a property associated with the Bloomsbury Group. It's open to the public. This was the country home of Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant, and it's example of their decorative style within a domestic content representing the fruition of more than 60 years of artistic creativity. The house is open to the public, and there's a beautiful garden there, but the group was mostly about art. Marion also mentioned Nessie Ram, and that was a fun Google because she's a British artist who, and this is from her website, which I will link on the blog, Nessie Ram is on a mission to paint the road verges of Britain in exquisite detail onto metal road signs to render visible the wildness and value of native plants. And of course, James Lovelock, who did indeed die on his birthday recently, it was in July, but Marion was off by 10 years. He made it to 103. Very impressive. So this is an English independent scientist, environmentalist, and futurist best known for proposing the Gaia hypothesis, which postulates that Earth functions as a self-regulating system. Oh, and here's a tidbit for you. James Lovelock worked for MI5 for years and was described as basically being Q from the Bond films. And Eric Anderson, who's one of the hosts of Gardener's World podcast, which is how I found Marion because I was listening to them have a good conversation. Anyway, those two ladies have started something called the Sustainable Landscape Foundation, which Marion described well in our interview, and I will put all those links in the show notes. Marion's book is really cute. It's not a big coffee table book. It's compact and full of really nice pictures, a lot of which have Marion doing the projects that she's describing. And as you could tell from the interview, she's extremely personable and passionate about these strategies and fun garden activities. And that comes through both in her writing and in the photographs. I have a link to it on the blog post and I put it on my Amazon storefront and all the other things I mentioned here will be linked. So just go to lhgardens.com. The very first project I tried from Marion's book was that spiral in the lawn. And it was so fun. It's kind of gotten away from me now because if you're a regular listener, you'll know that I'm taking care of the lawn myself now. This was a gift from my husband to not have any more chemicals put on it, but we did have it aerated professionally and I seeded it and therefore I'm not mowing any of it for a while and I've sort of lost the look of the spiral. But honestly, I'll put a photograph on my blog. It is so easy, so fun to try and rewarding and, and quick and I'm going to get back to it as soon as my little grass seedlings take hold. You heard me mention with Marion that I grow a ton of comfrey, and I do use it that way I described, which is dumping the horrible smelling stuff onto the compost pile to make it cook down quicker. Her idea of diluting the stinky solution and using it as a high nitrogen plant food is something that I'm going to try. And the dead hedges thing, so fun. There's a really good photograph. Look for it in the blog. You can see what it looks like and think about whether you might want to do it in your yard. It's pretty sculptural and cool, and of course you could get creative and do it however you want to. As you heard me mention, I am building a boat of sticks. And here's my Marion Boswell thought that I want to leave you with. It spoke to me because of the preposition in, even though I use the preposition into with gardens a lot. She wrote in her book, the journey begins by deciding that you prefer to be in the garden rather than just look at it. Well, if you're listening to this podcast, you're already a gardener, but you might be a new one. It brings a smile to my face to realize that that's exactly what happened to me when I became a gardener. I saw these plants in the yard of a house that we had purchased, and I wanted to play with them. I wanted to manipulate them and tame them and interact with them. 
The backdrop of a garden is always beautiful, but I think what's even more fun for all of us is the interaction with the garden. Questions from listeners. I got a question about Design Basics for Foundation Plantings from Misha Gill. She asked me to provide principles of a good foundation planting. Great question, Misha. Let's define foundation plantings. To me, that's what's planted in front of, or maybe on all sides of a house or another building to transition from the harsh lines of a constructed building. I mean, unless you live in a hobbit house or something, your architect had geometry, straight lines, angles that meet, and all that sort of thing in mind when he designed your home. Well, most architects do. Anyway, so we want to transition from the straight line of the house to the curvy lines of your landscape and nature to get to this more natural space. If you've ever seen a house without any foundation plantings, you might like the look of it. Maybe a modern house could look good that way. Most people find it a little bit uh, harsh. And it sends the message that either this is a brand spanking new house waiting for plants, or it's a very minimalist landscape, extremely minimalist. That can look good, but I think it's easier to settle a house into a landscape with plants. I mean, I may be biased, I really like plants, but I have some thoughts on the subject, and here they are in no particular order. A lot of contractors who build houses also put the basic foundation plants in because they want to avoid that look of, this is so new, this house is so new, that we're actually not quite finished here yet, are we? Sometimes those plantings are beautiful and thoughtful. Sometimes those plantings are assembled based on what's on sale at a local big box store. It's sad but true that lots of building contractors and even architects don't pay as much attention as they should to what the plants will look like, say, in five years. And if you've ever seen a house that's being consumed by its formerly two-scale foundation plantings, you'll know what I mean. So I guess my first principle, Misha, is that the plants should be chosen not just according to how they look today, but what their future mature look will be. We all know that planting and gardens are never static. Pruning is inevitable from time to time. But how about not putting a shrub that maxes out at 10 feet under a three-foot windowsill or stuff like that? I mean, scale is important. I think the next important principle would be to include evergreens. Unless you really like the looks of mulch and sticks in wintertime, you're going to want some interest to carry you through all year. And then depending on the architecture of the house and the preferences of the owners, symmetry might be an important factor for foundation plantings. But then again, this might be a little interest, particularly if the house is less formal and the house might not be symmetrical itself. Okay, what do we have so far now? Let's see. Scale of plants, winter interest, either symmetry or not symmetry. But going back to that point... Even if the front planting is not symmetrical, there should probably be some repetition and pattern to pull the look together. So it's not like one of these and one of those. Our eyes tend to like groups of three or five, and they're happy with repetition too. Can foundation plantings be a garden bed, you might wonder? Absolutely. But I would only suggest that to people like us, to gardeners. People's houses are usually noticed before people's gardens. And if you're a really avid gardener who can take care of the plants right in front of your house, that's wonderful. But if you're not, it might be best to stick with shrubs to scale and some evergreens mixed in so that your foundation becomes a maintenance issue like three or four times a year instead of something that will entertain us crazy plant people all year long. In other words, if you're not an avid gardener, best to keep it simple. If you are an avid gardener, flowers and flowering shrubs absolutely should be part of the look. When I was poking around for ideas on this, I saw some information on the Monrovia website that suggested that a good combination would be 50% evergreens, 25% flowering shrubs, and 25% flowering perennials or annuals. That seems pretty good to me. 
Another principle, not very exciting, but quite practical, and I know this from crawling around a lot of gardens and houses, there should be a distance of at least a foot between any plantings and your house. That makes it easier for you or tradesmen to maintain whatever needs to be maintained on your actual home, which is much more expensive to fix than plants. The house should get a bit of space and it should get the priority of letting people in that space. One other thing that I think can help the look of foundation plants is to go a little bit taller on the corners. In keeping in mind this idea of marrying the house to the landscape and softening lines, taller plants at the corners of your house tend to look good. And the last thing I would say is that just like all things in gardening, there are a lot of ways to do foundation plantings right. If some don'ts about foundation plants are helpful, here's a short list. Don't let your plants grow in front of windows unless you're in a witness protection program. Don't let ivy grow into your basement. I've done that before. It doesn't make you feel like a mature adult homeowner. And lastly, if alien invasive plants such as barberry, even the slightly attractive reddish one, were included in the landscape planting that you inherited, it'd be great if you just ripped those guys out and tried something better. Okay, I hope this helped. Misha, thanks for the question. Last episode, I told you I was going to get busy with division of perennials, and it is happening. It is so happening. All right, let's go over the basics for how to divide a perennial. The easiest way is to dig out the whole clump and either saw it or slice it in half with your shovel. If you liked where it was in the first place, you can put half of it back in the same hole and trundle the other half off to wherever you want a new free plant. Keep in mind that some of your perennials might be big enough to provide far more than one extra plant. Even in my relatively new garden, I have some hostas, for example, that could be 10 skinny little plants if I cared to employ some fine surgical techniques. If you're a new gardener, you'll find that some perennials kind of fall apart into different pieces if you dig up the whole thing. Some stay together in nice clumps like hostas or ferns, daylilies do that, Siberian irises. A few examples of the ones that might be kind of clumpy but might kind of fall apart would be flocks, peonies, German irises. Don't worry if it falls apart, and maybe you take two or three pieces to your new hole to give it a bit of bulk to start out with. If you dig up a perennial that you did not formally know to have a single taproot, well, you're out of luck. You can't divide a single taproot. Maybe you've gotten a little exercise by digging, but you really should probably put that guy right back in the ground. He will not, shall we say, respond kindly to your advances. If you saw on Instagram this past week, I did a Tuesday tip on a sort of a wandering Hakonicloa grass, a Hakon grass. It sometimes happens that when you're spying a potential victim of your surgical desires and you see that there's a bit of the plant that is spread away from the main clump, it might be easier just to excise the stray instead of digging up the whole clump. If you're a new listener and a new gardener and you're wondering, like, why do you even have to divide perennials? The answer is that you don't have to, but you might want to. And some plants actually are much better if you do. So maybe wander back to episode 77 and listen to the reasons why one might want to divide a perennial. And lastly, don't forget that just like any other victims of surgery, your plants will need a little post-op TLC. Give them extra water for the next week or two so that they settle into their new home. And the one that you've just removed half of it, it also needs a little encouragement. He's like, hey, you took half of me away but you're the boss and he'll be fine if you just water him well. He'll settle right back in. As you know, I call this part of the show the playlist, how to play in your garden and what to listen to. I hope you can now go out and do a bunch of perennial divisions and that's how you will play, but what to listen to? Well, I don't know about you, but I've been kind of unexpectedly emotional about the passing of the queen. 
I was a huge fan, and of course the pomp and circumstance surrounding that family is a little bit irresistible for me, even when it's sad news. Anyway, this week I'm going to recommend Gardener's Corner, which is one of my favorite gardening podcasts. It's Irish, and they take questions. It's very low-key and fun, and of course the accents are adorable. They were able to throw a show together last Saturday morning, just two days after the Queen had died, and it's full of great gardening information, but they concentrated on people who had known the Queen or worked in her gardens or done flowers for her or something like that. So it was really heartwarming to listen to. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Again, it's Gardener's Corner from September 10th. And what is my needy plea of the week? Let's go back to our one of our old favorites, which is you, if you haven't already, could rate and possibly take a moment to review this podcast on Apple Reviews. It's really helpful to help me grow the podcast. And if you like it, please tell somebody about it. I thank you very kindly for doing that, my gardening friends. This was fun. If you have any questions or comments or corrections, please reach out on Instagram. I am Leslie Harris LH and my website is lhgardens.com. Please go have a look at the blog that accompanies this podcast at your comments and consider buying me a coffee to help support the podcast. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Dos Amigos Landscaping, Color Blends Bulbs, GreatGardenPlants.com, and my artist friend, Karen Blair. Oh, by the way, Color Blends is a third-generation bulb company offering top-sized flower bulbs directly to ambitious residential gardeners and landscape professionals at wholesale prices. And they're running out of stuff, so you need to go there, colorblends.com, and order up a storm. Hey, I named this show Into the Garden with Leslie. In the garden, into the garden, whichever preposition you like, I am both. I'm in it and I'm into it. And I want to get you in and into yours. So I'll see you next time. 